That's T.I. featuring Chris Brown on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon and welcome to it. Another edition of Between Two Femmes. I'm Mabale Moloy. No, hang on. And I, I must be see a carrot. I did not have your microphone on. Uh, let's not waste any time. Let's get straight into it and catch you up with what's been happening in the women's news. India is traditionally this conservative country, right? Hmm. And arranged marriages are not unfamiliar. It's a common practice. Uh, now, yeah, don't you get engaged at about two? They're <laughs> <laughs> like royals. I mean, you know, so here's the thing. Like Game of Thrones. There is, there is this mother in India who placed an ad in the newspaper for her son, except she is looking for a husband for her gay son. Oh. And this ad has gone viral precisely for the reasons that I've mentioned. India, traditionally conservative country. And the nice thing about it that is that this woman has been applauded for her bravery. Mm. Um, we're what, not is, seeing, what is the terminology? What are they saying? Well, let me read you the actual <laughs> ad. Seeking 25 to 40, well-placed, animal-loving, vegetarian, has to be vegetarian, vegetarian <laughs> groom for my son. Hindus, Hindus. Yeah, for my son who's 36, 5 foot 11, who works with an NGO. And the thing about the story is that they, this, this, this woman and her son Mm. decided, excuse me, decided that they were going to do this, but they had to knock on a few doors and were unfortunately turned away by most newspapers until this one last newspaper that they they approached said, absolutely, we'll place your ad. It's kind of a timeless ad because I mean, I think Ireland is voting this week. Remember we said they were voting on whether you could, um, have same-sex marriages, and they are one of the few countries actually putting it to the vote, which okay. would be very interesting. Can you can you get married in India if you're a same-sex well, couple? Well, I, I think the laws about that are pretty strict, actually. Um, they 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 refer to homosexuality as this carnal intercourse against the order of nature with any man, woman, or animal. Wildly interpreted to refer to gay te- to gay sex is punishable by up to ten years in jail. So I think it is still an illegal practice, or so it's seen as an illegal practice in India, which is a problem. So, so it's quite a bold act of this mother. Oh, it's hugely, hugely brave. Baby steps, but you know we need to get on with this progression thing seriously. So I like we that seriously story. Seriously, do yeah. Now, human rights groups, basically the Human Rights Watch. Um, have been calling out Indonesia on its practice of requiring virginity tests mm. for female military recruits. So basically a doctor visually and manually checks for the presence of a hymen. Of course, it's quite like nonsensical because, you know, many women don't have a hymen for other reasons other than having lost their virginity. Maybe they rode a horse. Really. You, exactly. You could get on a horse and, well, there it goes. I mean, Riding roughshod on a horse. Anyway, a military spokesman told The Guardian newspaper that it is necessary in response to this whole call to use two-finger test to check for the intactness of female recruits' hymens. Who is doing this test? Is it a female doctor doing this test? Oh, well, there you go. The spokesman, Fuad Musa, that's a very good question, said, we need to examine the mentality of these applicants. If they are no longer virgins, if they are naughty, my buddy, if they are naughty, (laughs) are you a naughty woman? It means their mentality is not good. 
So of course, of course, of course. So Human Rights Watch has not received a response from the general surgeon of the Indonesian National Armed Forces because they said the virginity test should be ended immediately. And the poor women who have to undergo it or have had to undergo it must have some psychological counseling. Sadly, Indonesia remains stum about this. Quiet. Quiet. All quiet on that Western Front or Eastern Front or wherever it is. Do you know that there was a debate that was had earlier this year about um, one of the suggested methods to try and curb this teenage pregnancy problem that we have in this country. Mm. One woman actually suggested that we go back to virginity, to testing. virginity testing for girls, of course, because, you know. Yeah. Um, well, you can't really test for virginity. No, you can't test for boys, boys, but I mean, the point that I'm trying to make but is... But you can't really test for virginity No, you can't. In girls it's either. That is stupid. actually it's spurious. So there you go. Spurious research. We love some of that. Why HIV positive people should donate their organs. There's an increasing uh, number of HIV positive pe- uh, organs that are available for donation. But apparently, up until now, they haven't really been uh, doing so. If you're HIV positive, you can get an HIV positive organ. If you're HIV positive and I'm HIV positive and you pass on, I can get your kidney. So nearly 400 HIV positive potential organ donors in the United States could donate organs each year to HIV positive people waiting for transplants. That's great because, you know, I mean, here in South Africa, we have 5,000 people on the waiting list waiting for organs. Exactly. Now, if you are HIV, many of those people are HIV positive. And That's if, what if, you have to if find you out. are HIV positive, I suspect that they move you even further down the list yeah. because you know there's a ranking, there's an order, a ranking there order. There is an order. And if so, you're a minister of health. Well, <laughs> you, you know, you'll get a liver. You get, ASAP. You get up um, that list. <laughs> and so, I suppose what they're doing is relooking the situation in the U.S., where they're saying, "Hang on, um, we have too many people on this waiting list." Um, the people who are HIV positive are at the bottom of the list. They end up dying. But the fact of the matter is, if there is an organ available from somebody who is HIV positive, then it should go to the person on that list who is HIV positive, which makes sense. Is, it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, we had on the show, and I think we must get her back, that lovely girl who was Get Me to 21, Jenna. Oh yes, remember she, with the what was wrong with her lungs she, again? Yeah, so she's had a double lung transplant now, and I think it's been hard going, mm. really hard going, and she's been in and out of the ICU for the last couple of months. But um, I look forward to. I think we must catch up with her. Absolutely, to find out how she's doing. Yeah, I mean, she must yeah. have been so relieved when those organs became available. I know, but it's it's such a it's such a mission afterwards, and I think that's what we were saying um, with with the other lung transplant girl who was on the show. Um, J- uh, Jade was her name, Jade. Anyway, who who had had the transplant, and she says you think that now everything's going to be great, but in fact. The uphill battle starts once you get the new lungs. Which I think a lot of people don't necessarily know. They just assume once you get the organs, yay, everything has been fixed. You're back to your old self 100%. You're up and running and everything mm. is great. Mm. All right. Well, let's wrap it up there for the women's news. We've got a busy hour coming up next.
Now, many of us travelers are confused about all these new airlines that are popping up in South Africa. We have like, I, I, I've actually lost count of how many different airlines we've got popping up in South Africa. We've got a lot of airlines. Mango, Kalula. Speak to me. I treat that airport like a bus station. <laughs> it's like your second <laughs> home. Um, you so know it's your second home and the people at Vida. Um, recognize you at the airport <laughs> and know your order. That is a problem. But one <laughs> thing that you might have not thought about is why one carrier might charge you extra, say, for your luggage or on a different carrier, you're expected to pay extra for your coffee and your food. And then on a different airline, they'll say, no, 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 that's covered for. And so we've got the head of communications for Travel Start, Russell Jarvis, joining us this afternoon to talk more about these airlines that are popping up all over the place and just to give us some, you know, some information, some, some, some tips for traveling. Some airline information. Russell, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you loud and clear. Thank you. <laughs> Um, okay. Thank you for having me on the show. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Well, Russell, maybe let's begin with, um, with this competition that exists between state-owned airlines and then these private-owned airlines that are popping up all over the place. Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, in the South African context, there's uh, certainly been a David and Goliath uh, type of history that's always existed between the state-owned carrier, SAA, mm-hmm. and its subsidiary, Mango, and the private Are we allowed to mention carriers. it on the uh, on air? No, no, I'm teasing, I'm teasing. <laughs> Um, yeah, most of your listeners will remember one time, uh, who eventually ceased operations in August 2012. Yeah. Uh, Didn't people end up with no tickets or having no tickets refunded, Russell? Um, there were issues. Um, I think everyone who booked on a credit card was able to get a refund easier. Um, in some cases, passengers were only partially refunded. Refunded, and then in some cases, uh, passengers who took things like the airline liquidation policy, which Travel Start offers, um, were well looked after, and would have received a full refund. So it sort of varied per scenario. <laughs> uh, Russell, tell us about some of the more recent um, of these private-owned airlines that have come onto the scene, because the last thing that they want is to end up like a one-time. Yeah, um, they face an uphill battle. So, um, first of all, I'll talk about Flysafe because they launched October 24, 2014, sorry. And, uh, they launched, uh, after much resistance from competitor airlines like BA Comair, um, who actually bought an urgent interdict against Flysafe in the high court. Um, so basically they were kind of, uh, clasping at straws for uh, to get FlySafe not to launch because uh, this interdict was uh, based on airlines needing a certain level of South African ownership. And what BA Kame was saying was that uh, um, uh, SAFE wasn't meeting uh, those requirements um, because one of the shareholders' addresses that were listed on the FlySafe document Documentation was in Dublin, um, but it turned out that that particular shareholder was a South African citizen residing in Ireland. Um, I mean, what do you find is the the general perception? I mean, aren't people? Yeah, I, I, mean, I see what Mabali's getting. At. I, I kind of suspect that us as South Africans, we look at these, you know, these d- smaller domestic airlines, and, and we kind of be worried. Yeah, and we're like, we're going to end up in the Drakenberg. <laughs> 
like <laughs> the Austrians well, I, I, in I guess, their own their very own Drakensberg. I guess what I'm what I'm getting it at is dark there. <laughs> we're the worried dark about place. we're worried about safety. Number one, um, you know, I mean, these are good reputable airlines, or correct? Uh, yeah, there are. So, um, let me just tell you, let's just, uh, talk about the safety thing for a bit. So, there, there, there's always been these rumors that float around that, uh, you know, budget airlines make money by saving on regular maintenance, ch- uh, checks and things like that. Um, you know, this is totally not true. Um, they actually save by having, uh, different pricing methods and, uh, they, they actually make money by creating ancillary revenue through a variety of value-add products, which can be purchased and added to um, like what, a booking you can at the actually discretion. bring your luggage with you <laughs> onto the Sorry, plane. Can you repeat that? That what you, the the extra measures are that you can bring your luggage with you. <laughs> Well, <laughs> no, the, the, I mean, there's, there's, there's plenty of things that they, that they look at. So it could be anything from pre-seating requirements. Um, or to, you can sit um, at all. <laughs> Isn't there an airline in Russia where you, don't, you, you can stand, actually? Well, we, we've heard a lot about um, uh, Ryanair, yes. um, which is uh, quite popular in Europe because it's so so cheap and uh, you know there's always been things there about their controversial CEO his name's Michael O'Leary and he was uh, saying at one point they were going to charge customers to use the toilet so you know thank God we haven't uh, reached that level in South Africa yet Um. so Russell why am I paying for my coffee on one flight and then not paying for it on a different flight and then also why am I paying for my luggage on this flight and then on not on that one and how do I keep up with all of this um, information? <laughs> well, I mean, you can, you know, we, at Travel Stock, we're trying to remain uh, pretty on top of keeping the, the, the public educated about these things because, you know, the public looks at a low-cost airline and uh, they think of Kalula and Mango. And while these are low-cost airlines, they're not true low-cost carriers in the sense of Fly Safair. Fly, uh, Fly Safair is the only one that charges extra for luggage. It uh, costs uh, 250 rand if you pay for it at the airport and 150 rand if you book through us. And... Um, you know, they're the only ones that do this, and uh, this is like uh, in line with a true low-cost carrier model, um, which is the business model which Ryanair and EasyJet and those famous ones in, in Europe are well known for. Um, so I think it's it's less about um, uh, duping the public and more about educating the public uh, about how these new airlines operate because, you know, we, we're quite keen to support them because at the end of the day, more competition is going to uh, equate to better prices for consumers. And, you know, um, I'm a price-conscious consumer. That's one of the biggest things I look at when I'm flying uh, between Cape Town and Joburg or to Durban or whatever, you know. So I think that's going to help the so what is the, the, best help deal? the What is the best deal you've seen lately? <laughs> Give us a good deal, uh, Ryan. Hey? Uh, the best the best deal actually <laughs> finished at midnight. Uh, oh, thanks. Uh, uh, this morning or last night, and uh, it was with Sky. <laughs> Sorry about that. It yeah. ran from Monday to Wednesday at midnight, and uh, it was uh, we had Skywise tickets for 499 rand one way, which was actually cheaper than what the airline sells it for. So that was quite a feather in our cap. Now, is that <laughs> is that a real thing, or is there in addition? Then they go okay, 499 one way plus 
airport taxes. And then the airport taxes no. are like 3,000 rand. <laughs> what are airport taxes? No, no. Yes, anyway. Uh, <laughs> yes, what are yeah, airport they, taxes? They, the airport taxes are always a, a tough one because, you know, when you look at the base fare, and uh, you break it down and see what the airline's charging compared to what the airport charges for you to travel through there and use those facilities, um, you know, the disparity is quite big. So, you know, I'm not really in a position to comment on airport taxes because I'm not sure how those are worked out. But um, so, but this $4.99 um, that you were talking about was like, or 449 or whatever it was, which is now that over. Yeah, that so included taxes. It included the taxes. So now how is this airline going to make any money if they're flying well, people for 800 bucks to Cape Town? I mean, just petrol hmm. costs. How do they, how do they stay in business? In, yeah. Um, well, you know, this is, this is what they face when they enter the market. They have to sort of, um, uh, to gain market share and to, to get their name out there and to get people actually traveling with them, they need to be doing this kind of thing, um, initially. Um, so, you know, we just hope, uh, the trend continues because, uh, you know, there's another low cost carrier coming in soon called Fly Go Air. Um, they should be launching in June, although it might, you know, how this, uh, this goes, it might be a lot longer than that. But, uh, you know, the more, the more these guys are, are, are coming into the market, the more the playing field is being leveled, uh, from the consumer's pers- perspective. Now, Russell, let's talk about these, uh, budget airlines flight plans, because am I going to be able to hop on one of these planes and go all the way to Greece, for example? I mean, how expensive are their flight plans? Um, so, um, we, in, the, in the case of the ones we've been talking about, they're, they're all domestic. Okay. And, um, you know, FlySafair, they've, they've expanded quite nicely and quite quickly too. Skywise has launched with Joburg to Cape Town and Cape Town to Joburg only. Um, the, the, the reason why most of them launch on, on that route is because it's, uh, it's actually one of the busiest uh, Air routes in the world. It's actually in the top ten, and uh, more than four million people travel that route every year. So, um, you know, it's in the interest to start on a route that has a, a lot of uh, high traffic uh, volume, and then uh, see how it goes and expand from there. So, you know, Skywise is being quite methodical. Uh, Fly Safir, they've got Cape Town, Joburg, George, and Port Elizabeth, um, and then you know. Th- Everyone's now saying to us at Travel Start, um, you know, what about Durban? What about East London? We're still the victims of this uh, monopoly that exists on these routes. And uh, we kind of saying, you know, you just have to wait because uh, it, it's, it's probably coming soon. Russell, thank you very much for your time this afternoon. That's Russell, Russell, oh my word. Russell Jarvis, uh, head of communication at as in yeah. Lion Air. You know what? I'm sorry, Russell. It's okay. I think he caught myself. No, I, I caught myself. Russell, thank you for joining us this afternoon. Thanks very much. Okay. Eh? All right then. All thank right. you, uh, Russell Jarvis. But now coming up next, and this is very exciting. I'm very excited about this. We're going to be talking I'm to Gavin Evans. Yeah. Gavin Evans has launched a book called. Black brain, Black brain, white brain. brain. And we're going to be tackling the issue of racist science and how it tries to classify race groups according to or in, in terms of intelligence. So we've got uh, the author himself joining us right after this.
Lion Babe with Wonder Woman. I like it's it. It's my favorite song at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> you did actually introduce me to the song. I like it. It's got spunk to Have it. Have you seen her hair? No, I haven't. The Lion Babe. Uh, I love it. Uh, <laughs> that's the name of the band, right? Yes. Okay. Great stuff. So, okay. So we're going to be talking to Gavin Evans. Uh, Gavin has written this book called Black Brain, White Brain. Yes. And his question is. Yeah. Um, well, it, it tackles racist science, which for a long time has tried to, you know, classify yeah. us as human beings based on our race and then to try and determine which race group is more intelligent than the other. So Gavin has written this book to challenge all of that. Now, he's worked as a journalist for 30 years. Uh, he spent a decade in South Africa for Mail and Guardian, the Sunday Times, and as a foreign correspondent for Interpress Service. Um, he's also written for the New York Times, Newsday. So, I mean, you know, in terms of um, hmm. experience, work experience, uh, the, the, the man really knows, you know, he really knows what he's talking about. And so, Gavin, good afternoon and thank you for speaking to us. Hello, Gavin. Oh, hang on. Oh, no. Hang on. Gavin, can you hear me? Hello? Oh, great. There we go. Hello, Gavin. Can you hear us clearly? Uh, yeah, I can hear fine. Okay. Yeah, Hello, fantastic. Gavin. I believe you are now in P.E., yeah, that's right. I'm You're on the last leg of my book tour. It's a mammoth book tour. Last night I saw you at the Troyville Hotel where they have a sort of book um, dinner. I must say it's a really spectacular evening because you get the amazing sort of Portuguese food that the Troyville is famous for and lots of food for thought. And... What I wanted to start with was essentially the question that um, your your fellow who was interviewing you last night started with, which was, why this book? What what possessed you? I mean, the the, the you, I thought you were writing books about uh, boxes and <laughs> boxes and politics. Yeah. Yes. Um, the um, the reason I did this. Um, this book is, is that there's been a revival, um, particularly in, in America, but, it, but in other countries as well, of racist science. Um, there have been a number, it's come from a number of different um, sources. And what's really worried me about it is that previous waves of race science, um, there was one in 1969, there was an, a, a book called The Bell Curve in, in 1994, were met with very strong academic and uh, media criticism. But this latest wave has been muted, and there's been very little um, uh, uh, um, at, in, in the way of, of serious critiques of this kind of um, of this kind of thinking. Um, and that's why I did the book. I mean, it was particularly what, what spurred me on to start researching it was a, a paper produced um, in, in 2005, which has really started the new wave. Um, which claimed that Ashkenazi Jews were innately more intelligent than anybody else. And if mm. you're saying that, then you're obviously saying that there's some people who are less um, in- intelligent. And that was then picked up by people like Steven Pinker, um, the evolutionary psychologist who approved of the paper. Um, he was and very highly respected in his field. What, what, Sorry? So I'm saying, I mean, what I find interesting is that here is a highly respected sort of fellow like Steven Pinker. Yeah basically agreeing with quite a racist assumption. Yeah. Steven Pinker's not a scientist. He's a psychologist. And, and the, the, the paper was making scientific claims. And, and, and there were claims that, just frankly, Steven Pinker didn't have the scientific knowledge to comment on. So later, serious geneticists looked at the paper 
and and they've just said it's just simply nonsense that all the premises, all its conclusions, um, uh, were not just flawed, but but were plain wrong. Gavin, but, um, Gavin, let's get into what this racist science has preached about the different race groups. I mean, for example, if you're white, the racist the racist science says what about you? Okay, well, what what the the, the current wave of race science um, uh, argues is that um, white people are innately more intelligent than black people, and that Chinese Asian people um, are slightly more intelligent than white people. So they say, look, we can't be racist because <laughs> we're saying that you know Chinese Asian people are, are slightly better than us. Um, so that's that's what that's its, it's, its kind of core belief, um, and uh, I mean that belief is based on the view that, that, that human brains continue to evolve, but evolve at different rates in different places. And um, so those, those are the ideas that I challenge in, um, uh, in, in this book, because I, um, I think it's very clear that there are no um, innate differences in terms of average intelligence or other attributes between um, different population groups. And in fact, the whole idea of race groups has been thoroughly discredited by... Um, um, by science, because they, they there's no genetic basis to to the identification of different races. We, we so scientists talk about population groups, and even when when talks about population groups, there's no indication, no evidence of any innate differences um, in the brain structure and um, in the intelligence uh, of different population groups. Um, Kevin, you were saying, which I found really fascinating, that in fact. The only kind of like real evolutionary step that you can see in in um, terms of actual science, actual research, is the stuff that happened before we had the great migration out of Africa of pre you know prehistoric peoples. And yeah, I found that well, really fascinating. You were talking about little um, needles and buttons being found in. All sorts of sites here that definitely proved that all this, this this great leap forward in terms of human intelligence really happened back when we were all black. <laughs> Which I just yeah, that, that, that is true. And in fact, we were all black for quite a long time after we left Europe as well, as now discovered because uh, of extracting um, uh, uh, DNA from, from from corpses found in in bog peat, frozen in bog peat. So they. They, they now, they're now realizing that it's only when we move to, um, uh, away from being hunter gatherers to being agricultural, um, uh, communities. And so the diet was different and therefore the absorption of vitamin D was different. And that meant there was natural selection for lighter skins and cold planets. But yeah, in terms of the, the, what you're asking, the, the question about, um, um, about all these kind of scientific innovations, if you like, scientific in the sense of new knowledge, um, constantly coming out, um, it was once thought that there was a great leap forward about 35,000 years ago in Europe, and that this might have been the result of cold conditions or something like that, and because of the, the wonders of the um, cave paintings in the South Cave and, 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 and others um, in parts of Europe. But they've now found, because archaeologists were thin on the ground in Africa and thick on the ground in Europe, but now there's been much more um, archaeological digs being done. And they found, for example, um, uh, at, at one cave um, in, in, in the Western Cape, they found um, abstract um, geometric art um, 
uh, big plaques with, with um, uh, undoubtedly symbolic um, uh, geometric art. That has been carbon dated 75,000 years. And this blended um, uh, paint using a number of different chemicals, which, which requires a process of mixing, blending, experimentation, intelligence that we have, that's been carbon dated at 100,000 years ago. And then there are things which were once assumed to have evolved much later, but are now they're carbon dating them to, to far earlier, like um, buttons, um, needles, um, uh, short distance and long distance trade, um, uh, sophisticated traps for hunting, um, uh, um, hooks for fishing, those kinds of things. It was once thought that those evolved, um, first evolved in Europe. Now there's huge evidence um, all over Africa for these kinds of things as new digs are, um, are being done and more is being um, discovered. So, yeah, I mean, the indications are that we, the, our brains that, that we have today are no different from those of a people of, um, of 100,000 years ago. And the question then arises, well, um, and this is what a lot of race scientists put up. They say, look, human bodies have evolved in certain ways. So skin color is, is, is one example. Yeah. Um, another example would be the oriental people with the hepatic, um, fold over the eyes, singlet eyelids. And but they're doing example, stuff about that fold, hey? They, they are furiously embracing plastic surgery, Gavin. They are getting rid yes. of that fold with a wild abandon. <laughs> they're evolving out of their fold. Willy nilly. And so, and so, laugh, the, and laugh. so, and so the argument is that if, if bodies can evolve, then brains can too. Is, is that, is that what they're trying to argue? Yes, that's what they're trying to argue. They say if bodies can, yeah, exactly, as it can evolve, then brains can. But like the, you know, um, for example, ethnic diseases like sickle cell anemia. Yeah. They involve single gene mutation. And um, so sickle cell anemia um, is a result of evolution for protection against malaria. And if you've got the one allele, you have protection against uh, malaria. If you've got two alleles, you've got sickle cell. Um, the those are intelligence, which is a very limited form of intelligence, involves a network of thousands of genes. So you're not comparing like with like. There's no reason to to, to believe it. Um, brains have continued to evolve. Gavin, if I could just ask you to just, you know, to try and remain still where you are, because, you know, if you move around, then we struggle to hear you a, a little bit. But let's, I mean, let's talk about IQ and environment and how those things come into play where, where intelligence is involved. Okay, so, so um, I mean, all, all of the, the examples of race science have great faith in that IQ measures innate general intelligence. All the evidence is against them. Um, probably the most important IQ theorist of the last 50 years, James Flynn, discovered what's called now the Flynn effect. And that is that IQs are rising across the board all over the world and generation upon generation. And you discover that they were rising. So you're saying that IQs are rising by generation? Yeah, that's right. So they're rising generation on generation because we've been more exposed to, to abstract logic. Um, so, and in some communities, some What does uh, that societies, mean, abstract logic? So if, if you okay. were 100 years ago, how would you be thinking okay. and how would it be different to now? All right. Well, if you were 100 years ago, you might, for example, if somebody asked you um, to look at a, a duck and a dog and, and says, look, what have these two got in common? Um, 
Well, you know, 100 years ago, on nothing in common because ducks got little ears and dogs got big ears and, and dogs got four legs and ducks got two and so on. Um, and if we ask somebody today, what do they have in common? They say, well, obviously, the animals. Yeah. So that's a kind of scientific category. And that categorization is what IQ tests measure. But that's very environmentally influenced. If you, if you um, live in a hunter-gatherer society, you're not going to be exposed to that kind of abstract logic. But if you're doing lots of computer games, you most certainly are. And, and what they found is that IQs in some communities are rising faster than, than others because previously they had low levels of, um, of education and exposure to abstraction. So in Kenya, for example, the fastest um, growth rate in, in any, any community um, of IQs has been in Kenya. With, I think they, they grew, they, they developed within a generation by something like 20 points, which is unheard of. And the reason for that was because the, second, the next generation of children had far more education through secondary education and had better nutrition. Um, but these are environmental factors. So the idea then of, of comparing the IQs of different population groups is completely uh, fallacious because um, the population, each population group will have different um, pressures and different influences in terms of that abstract logic which is measured by, um, by IQ. I mean, the other reason I, I um, question IQ well, is, is um, indicated by the name intelligence quotient. And I don't think that IQ me- um, measures, or it claims to measure general intelligence. I don't think general intelligence um, exists. I think there are lots of different kinds of intelligence. Um, and Gavin, so has, I, I think it's a misnomer. Has that test changed over time, that, that IQ test, or is, is, has it always been the same thing? Because it sounds to me like you would have to adapt what and how you're testing. Yeah, um, the, the, alarmingly or surprisingly, there's still huge faith, um, particularly in the United States, that IQ measures, um, you know, innate intelligence. And there's a, a belief among um, psychologists in America um, that there is such a thing as general intelligence. Um, now, a number of IQ theorists have, have, have questioned that. Um, most of them are people not based um, in America, questioned the idea of general intelligence. But certainly the idea that IQ is innate is, is quite easily, is, is easy to distribute. There have been studies of separated identical twins where, um, you know, where they all, when they grow up in families, they're obviously going to have the same or similar IQs. But once you separate them in terms of social class and educational background, the IQs vary hugely. Some, in one case, 29 points, in another case, 20 points. Um, so no, just so by simply overall. the fact that they were growing up in different families that had different economic backgrounds, yeah, had so the one say was adopted by fishermen and the one was adopted by doctors. The net result yeah, was that right. the IQ so, differed by twenty points. Yeah. That's, now, that's, this is interesting for me from the perspective of men and women because I mean we women are often at the the told that you know men are from Mars women are from Venus we all have completely different brains we think differently we have pregnancy brain we were actually quoting a statistic here mm-hmm. that said in fact you don't have pregnancy there is play. no such thing so so let's talk a bit about the differences in gender have you veered into that at all yes I do touch on it in my book but it is the subject 
my next book, which is which which is called Map Readers and Multitaskers. And I What I is take it called? Sorry. Venus. It's called Map Readers and Multitaskers. Ah, and yes. I take on the uh I take on the, the kind of Mars and Venus views of the differences between men and women. I mean, I think there are differences in, in some differences which are innate and biological. For example, men produce more testosterone, which probably makes them more competitive um, and, and certainly makes them more um, uh, aggressive. So I think, I think there are differences, but these differences have been hugely exaggerated by the kind of Mars and Venus authors and by evolutionary psychologists. And on the question of intelligence, which you asked about, I mean, there was a view in the 19th century, and it's still held by people like Professor Richard Lynn from the University of Ulster, that, that men are innately more intelligent than women. It's also a very widespread view um, among people of that bent. Um, Stephen Pinker is a, a very strong proponent of it, that men produce more geniuses um, and more idiots, so that the men have a bigger range um, in intelligence. Now, I would, I would dispute that. I, I think that, in fact, current IQ tests are showing that that um, uh, uh, on average, in most countries, women's IQs are slightly higher than men. But I don't think, again, I don't think that's innate. I think that's the result of the kind of learning culture among um, among males. Um, and certainly, the, the the level of the number of people who are reaching genius uh, scores in, in things like the American tax scores among women are increasing very rapidly because their parents are, are, are hot housing them and so on in the same way that they were doing for boys. So I think that that, um, I mean, that argument is is quite easy to, um, you know, to to destroy because it, it, it simply doesn't have a, a strong basis to it at all. But yeah, in the same way that sexism is innate, and so there we were reading about um, talking about earlier in the Indonesian army, naughty women are women who have lost their virginity, and so they test them for that in case they're naughty because then they have bad brains. Um, in the same way, I mean, we just want to understand, this was the question that Mabali and I were saying in talking about this interview. Where does racism come from? Where does it actually come from? Um, well, in, for the, in, in terms of the, 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 the gender um, thing, I, I, I think that um, studies in my hunter-gatherer society show a high level of kind of egalitarian behavior in terms of gender. So you have... A number of hunter-gatherer societies. You've had, you had, um, you know, women elders. Women were involved in the hunting. Men were involved in the, um, in the gathering. So I think that these the gender differences really kicked in once agriculture came in, and once we moved into city states, and you started having more diversity in terms of income, and women became. Um, became regarded as property, and then as a so result, so we can of blame that, it all like Tim Noakes, like Professor Tim Noakes on wheat. <laughs> hey, that damn wheat! It's like very bad for your bottom line, and it's bad for gender differences. But what does it do for for racism? Where does that okay, come so from? Where does, where does the race thing come from? I, I think that that part of it comes from the, the human inclination to when you see people who live differently from you. So if it's if, if it's the colonialist, it's, it's the colonized people. Or, the slave owner, it's the slave. Um, you then think, well, I'm the norm, and they are in some way different or inferior. So that could lead to anti-Semitism because it's a group set apart, a slightly different culture, or it could lead to racism of, um, of a more traditional kind because of the belief that, that your culture um, is superior. And I think that's where racism comes from. It's certainly been exacerbated 
by um, slavery, by colonialism, um, and by, and roads. by war. Gavin, um, I mean, I imagine the actual process of get, of working on this book must have involved a lot of research on your part. Um, you know, the, the general perception is that if a scientist says something, most of us will go, oh, well, if a scientist said it, it must be true. I believe it. And so, I mean, while you were writing this book and now that it's been launched and it's out there, were you at any point a little bit nervous because essentially you are challenging what science has said? As, as ridiculous as it is, um, was that an issue for you at all, a concern at any point? No, because I was, I was reading a great many other scientists, people, scientists I have a lot more respect for, mm. um, who are experts in these areas. So um, uh, a, a neurologist, paleontologist, psychiatrist, um, and evolutionary biologist, um, who were piece by piece just picking... Um, uh, well, picking pieces, the, um, the the premises and the conclusions of these race scientists. I mean, you do get people like a great scientist, um, um, James Watson of Watson and Crick. Um, the um, or, or, um, and he he um, claimed um, that he, he he said, well, white people are more intelligent than black people, and anyone who's worked with a black person would know that. Now. He's the person who discovered um, with, with James Crick the, the double helix of, uh, of, of DNA. Um, and when scientists work outside of the area of expertise, they sometimes come up with extraordinarily silly things. I mean, just, mm-hmm. just as an illustration, Crick himself believed that the world was controlled by extraterrestrials. <laughs> um, and so, these are the people so who this, found DNA. Who unraveled sorry, it. Sorry, well, uh, you're saying well, these are that? the people who unraveled DNA and yet they held these really ridiculous points of view. But what is yeah, the, the Im- one- what is the impact? If they hold this point of view and people respect them as they do, what is the impact? I mean, I think that is why it's so important to, to kind of unravel your argument and, and, and give it some airtime because People respect them, as Mabale said. Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, particularly when it's coming from people who are in the public eye, whether it's James Watson or or, or Stephen Pinker and the others as well, and then then those ideas are seen to be uh, are seen to be credible, even though the the people are talking way beyond the area of expertise. I mean, Pinker is not a scientist, and and um, and Watson. Um, uh, um, is not a population geneticist. So, so the, um, it's, I think it is very important that these ideas get, these ideas get ch- um, challenged because if you go around and, and the public, members of the public go around thinking, well, because the, the, um, the person next to them has a, a different color skin, that they are probably intelligent than them. Well, that affects um, relations and it affects personal relations. Um, and if you believe, for example, like the bell curve authors do, that poor people are poor um, because they have lower IQs, mm-hmm. um, then you also going to be. What's the point in having um, giving welfare to the poor or remedial education to to, to the poor? Let's rather um, give it to the people at the top of the pile. And in fact, that's what. Um, the chief advisor to the uh, education secretary in Britain, um, uh, Michael Gove, um, uh, has recently advocated. So, 
these, these ideas sometimes lead to, I think, dangerous uh, places. And dangerous policies that impact on people's lives. Yes. Essentially. What I liked about what uh, <laughs> Professor Jonathan Janssen of uh, the University of the Free State said of, about your book, um, he says, smart, accessible and stimulating. Black Brain, White Brain is by far the most important book yet written to systematically debunk society's lingering attachments to race science and its pet topics of intelligence, genetics, and civilization. And all we can say, Gavin, is thank you for writing this book. And I certainly can't wait until you debunk the gender myths as well. <laughs> Definitely looking forward to that. And Gavin, your book is available at all good, uh, all good bookstores currently, correct? Yeah, that's right. Fantastic. And on Kalahari. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic, Gavin. Thank you very much uh, for spending the, uh, this time with us this afternoon. We really thank appreciate you. it. Thank you for your time. That's uh, Black Brain, White Brain by Gavin Evans, if you're looking to get that book. I think it will be very interesting. It's just such a pity that they had load shedding in PE and we had to speak to him on this dodgy line. Well, you know, this is cell phone uh, networks for you. <laughs> uh, but this is where we're going to wrap it up for today. We'll see you back again here next week, Thursday, right here on Cliff Central. Where it's really fascinating. Dot com. <laughs> Cliffcentral.com. <laughs>